Welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm Lynn Galadner, a writer, entrepreneur, and changemaker, and I've dedicated my life to sharing stories of how people make meaning in their work and find purpose in their lives. This podcast highlights some of the great ideas and activities people do every day to make the world a better place. So much of the meaning we find comes from interacting with great people, developing relationships that are mutually beneficial, and doing work that inspires. I hope you'll be inspired by the people you meet on this podcast. We all need to find a way to make meaning in the mundane. Aaron Dworkin was President Obama's first appointment to the National Council on the Arts, and he was also appointed by Michigan Governor Snyder to the Michigan Council for Arts and Cultural Affairs. He is known nationally and locally as a driving force in arts leadership and entrepreneurship, with a dedication to social entrepreneurship in his work founding the Sphinx Organization and in his writing. Today, Aaron comes to the Make Meaning podcast to discuss the strides he has made in bringing access to the arts for a diverse array of students and the wisdom he imparts in his writing. His most recent book, The Entrepreneurial Artist, Lessons from Highly Successful Creatives, looks at how we can build a career from passion. Aaron Dworkin, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Well, I feel very lucky because I've read about you for years. Your work is so profound and vast. You are in so many different creative sectors and impacting people in a lot of ways. So thank you for making the time. So your work is so rich with meaning and purpose, and I'm not quite sure where to begin. I was telling you, I hope we get it all in in this in this episode. Um, but I wanted to hear just a little bit about how you got your start. Did you envision a certain path for your life, or did it sort of take you along on its way? Yeah, you know, I'd say in in many ways it's the combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and as they say, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And so while not early on in my life, I think I wasn't as prepared as I should have been, uh, getting later in life, then I made myself very prepared for opportunities. Um, But, you know, I started playing the violin when I was five. That was my kind of introduction to the arts. My adoptive mother was an amateur violinist, and that's what kind of drew me in. Okay. Um, And then that led to kind of this whole trajectory where then I ended up at the University of Michigan uh, as an undergraduate student, and my teacher, my white violinist, teacher says, Uh you know, do you want to play music by black composers? And I was even a little bit kind of like put off because I didn't think there were any black composers. I was like, so wait, you you don't want me to do classical? You want me to do jazz? Or you're kind of patronizing me or what is, you know, what is... (laughs) And he starts, you know, laughing and he pulls these volumes of works off of his shelves. Oh, and how it opened up my mind to William Grant Still, Roque Cordero, Joseph Boulogne St. George, an Afro-French contemporary of Mozart's, and made me realize that there was this whole component of classical music I didn't know existed. Mm-hmm. And that then got me thinking about well, how could I, as a biracial violinist, not know that there were any black composers? And when I see kind of issues in the world, I think, is there something I can do to to help solve it or to help contribute in some way to making it better? And that led to then this idea. I didn't view myself as a social entrepreneur at the time. <laughs> yeah, I just was like, there needs to be more diversity in classical music, so For can't sure. I do something about it? Right. And um, and that kind of then developed, uh, you know, that kind of track, if you will, for me. And um, and I so I think my life is kind of filled with these moments, both ones that were of self-intention and mm-hmm. ones where opportunities presented themselves. I just, I love that you are asserting that because when I, I've read about the Sphinx organization, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, it, to me, you know, bringing the arts 
to more underserved communities um, spoke more about, you know, giving opportunities to children of, you know, all communities to um, step into the arts and to participate and to have those lessons and, and perform. But I love what you're saying also about understanding all of the talented artists and composers and creatives who have come before us and knowing their work, because yes, we all know the Mozarts and the Shakespeare's, but we need to know all of the voices so that it's representing our world. And I think that's a huge part of this. Absolutely. And all too often, whether it be in the arts or other areas, that diverse representation is left out. And so that's why even, you know, my, my book on creative entrepreneurship, which isn't about diversity, right. yet reflects an incredibly diverse range of culture, of background, and, and of artistic discipline of, you know, human beings who have contributed in this way to society. Um, and I, I wish that more... Um, institutions would think about having that breadth so that, no, you don't have to have your one thing you do during Black History Month or MLK Day, but rather that the breadth of what you do encompasses the breadth of your audience, your communities, and ultimately our society as a whole. Well, and I think also um, this ties really well into talking about identity. And I'm sure your identity informed a lot of your path. I think it does for all of us when we realize that we have these nuances and different origins, that they're all part of our story. So I'm going to read from my notes because this is complicated, but you were born in New York, adopted and raised by white Jewish parents in Pennsylvania, and you later reunited with your birth family, which included a black Jehovah's Witness father and a white Irish Catholic mother. So how have you defined your identity and how has that changed over time? Yeah, so uh, so it is true, and in the end, uh, you know, kind of growing up, uh, basically, you know, was a black, white, Jewish, Irish, Catholic, Jehovah's Witness who had a big <laughs> afro and played the violin. Love it, love <laughs> With it. a last name Dworkin. It yes. was very tough, especially in Hershey, Pennsylvania. <laughs> uh, so I was ostracized, obviously, quite a sure. bit, which only brought me closer to my art. But yeah. I think at that very early age, when I just wanted to be quote unquote normal. Right. I just wish I I wish I wasn't who I was. Why mm-hmm. did I have to be so different? Mm-hmm. Um, and because I was forced, if you will, into my identity of ostracization, mm-hmm. somewhere at around that time, I came to, you know, kind of, if you will, deal with it. I didn't want to. I wanted to be normal, but I had sure. to deal with at least what others perceived as not normal. Yeah. But that then grew into a, not just a comfortability, but almost and a pride and desire around it. And so ultimately it was, you know, black people would look at me and be like, oh, you're not really black because I played the violin or, you know, that kind of thing. And white people, hey, you're, you're not really white. You don't look white, you know, or whatever. All yeah. these things. And so what happened at around that time was that I became Aaron. Mm-hmm. And first and foremost, more than anything, I was just Aaron. Yeah. And I defined who that was. And yes, uh, because of my outwardly appearance, people view me as African-American, sure. even though I'm biracial. Um, sure. And people would look at me and say, okay, I'm identify me as male. Um, people would look at me and I do if I'm playing the violin as a classical musician. So I was, I realized at this early age that there were that all of these other people would identify me in certain ways mm-hmm. but that i controlled who aaron is and Absolutely. aaron was um, and i became very comfortable with that and and thought about that actually at an early age but it came out of 
not having a choice right, right, <laughs> other yes. than to do that. So. It's interesting. It's, and I do think that all of these nuances about our identity def- can define us for good or for bad. Um, and I love that you took charge of that and decided that you would ultimately have the final say on the definition because that's really what we should all be doing. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily who others think I am, but I'm who I want to step into. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about some of your work. And so I know um, you're a professor at the University of Michigan, and yes. I graduated from there a very long time ago. Go Blue. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, But so you do that, and then you, st- you founded the Sphinx organization. So talk a little bit about how that came to be um, and how it's serving underserved communities. Let's hear a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, you know, I was an undergraduate student actually when these issues came up and I, and I thought to myself, you know, this is, it's tragic that, um, that music by black composers and, and Latino composers, Mm -hmm. uh, Latinx composers is not known. Mm -hmm. Um, And not only that, but that this pathway to the professional field for many young musicians of color is more difficult, if not impossible in certain Mm. circumstances. And would there be some way that we could impact that. And mm-hmm. so that started what was a very simple idea of what if there was a competition mm-hmm. for young black and Latin X string players such mm-hmm. as myself, we mm-hmm. could come together, play music by composers of color, which would bring light to those works. Mm-hmm. We then perform, compete, gain scholarships to attend the top summer music institutions as well as educational institutions, mm-hmm. have performance opportunities. And if we did that, it would solve it, classical music would be diverse within a couple of years. Sounds perfect, <laughs> exactly. Right? <laughs> so as uh, as of course all change does not occur typically like that, uh-huh. and so um, very early on I realized it would take more than just a competition. Sure. And so that's led to the summer programs, to um, the uh, international convening that Sphinx does, Sphinx Connect, uh, wow. bringing together over 800 people each year here in Detroit Wonderful. to talk about and engage on these issues related to diversity in the performing arts. And um, and so, uh, you know, kind of along the way, it was interesting in one of these documentaries they did on Sphinx, but um, they were interviewing someone and they said, well, it's really less of an organization organization and more of a movement. Ooh, I love that. And and I really I hadn't thought I guess that way before, but I I realized that was the case in that the work of Sphinx is so far beyond just the work of 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 an organization. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the participants, whether in the summer program or in the competition or attendees of Sphinx Connect, it's that work that they're doing. It's that shared belief in the power of diversity, not just for our communities or for our society, but for our art form that we Absolutely. love and what it contributes and that they all believe in that and are utilizing their own talents, whether artistic, administrative, or otherwise, to further that in their own way. Mm-hmm. And in that way, that kind of ripple effect, um, I think, is what, um, as I can kind of reflect on the last 20 years, is mm-hmm. something that I am just incredibly proud of. And as most Sphinxers say, uh, refer to kind of that whole constituency of Sphinx as La Familia. I love it. So how can our listeners um, get involved if they're interested in learning more or contributing to the effort? Where would we send them? Yeah, absolutely. Sphinxmusic.org. Okay. Uh, and uh, there on the website, you can see all about the different programs uh, and the different opportunities, whether to participate um, or to help uh, try to make possible or support uh, some of the different work that the organization does. It's um, it's truly, a, a, you know, kind of amazing for me to be able to kind of look now, having transitioned 
transition from my role yeah. about five years ago uh, and look at the incredible work of the team and everyone involved. That's great. You should be so proud of that. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about um, some of your creative works. And there are, there are many, so I hope I'm not leaving any of them out. I know you are an accomplished performer. You have two CDs, an independent film. Yes. Am I right? Yeah. Visual Digital Art Project, Yes. Um, which I would love to talk about. And then um, I'm going to list the books because they all sound really cool. And they're in such different genres, <laughs> which is fun. You know, I don't know if that's just to reach a wider audience or because it's like, today I'll write a children's book and tomorrow right. a memoir, you know. So The First Adventure of Chili Peppers is the children's book, right? Correct. All right. And then They Said I Wasn't Really Black is a poetry collection, which mm-hmm. I'm so excited to read. Um, again, Amazon is where I got everything. Um, your memoir, Uncommon Rhythm, A Black-White-Jewish-Jehovah's Witness-Irish Catholic Adoptee's Journey to Leadership. Whew, the okay. longest title of all my books. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, a science fiction novel, Ethos, Rise of Malcolm. And then the newest one, The Entrepreneurial Artist, Lessons from Highly Successful Creatives. Yeah. So tell me about this one. What was the inspiration? Who's the audience you're reaching for? Um, And then, of course, I want you to share a little excerpt. Yeah. So it's been wonderful. I I teach uh, creative entrepreneurship and arts leadership at the University of Michigan. And, um, you know, so I'm constantly engaged in this conversation with my students and discovery of what are those core aspects that empower someone to ostensibly build a sustainable enterprise around their art making. Hmm. And I think we're at a phenomenal time in history where there are so many, because of technology, so many ways to do this, and in some ways more ways than ever before. And so I find that exciting, and we talk about that, we delve into those. We, Of course, I share all these best practices and things that they need to do. But in doing that, one of the things that I've found is that the power of personal story, mm-hmm. as of course you know, yeah. and all the work that you do. Yes. And so this idea of could I find a couple historical examples, but then modern day creative entrepreneurs who are doing it and okay. to actually interview them mm. and to ask them about their personal story and these aspects. And then from that personal story, pull the best practices for creative entrepreneurship. And so that kind of became this idea of what mm. if we do this for a book and then um, and and also cover as many disciplines as possible. So sure. Wow. Build, build Tall order. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, but also, of course, the kind of stuff that I love. And, sure. and all of these people are people who I you know, love and admire and, and look to for guidance and mentorship in terms of creative entrepreneurship. So, sure. you know, delving into musical theater, Lynn manuel Miranda, mm-hmm. or for theater, Jeff Daniels, or for conducting Marin Alsop um, and dance, Bill T. Jones. And so this, this kind of wonderful collection. And then to also look historically and say, well, what was Mozart doing? You know, what was Shakespeare doing? And so for them, I interviewed kind of some of the leading scholars of their of their work. So all of that kind of combined and brought together this collection of stories, okay. um, but where at the end of each chapter, I actually coalesce what are the takeaways. Hmm. Um, and in that way, it's really a book that can apply as kind of a trade to the general public and anyone who's just interested in their stories sure. and who might be interested in different artistic or just straight entrepreneurial pursuits. Okay. Um, and then also it is a very pragmatic um, tool mm-hmm. for those who are in arts administration, arts leadership, arts entrepreneurship, or creative entrepreneurship courses uh, around the country, of which those types of programs um, 
uh, are growing significantly because schools of the arts realize that these skill sets are critically important for our students to learn. I remember at uh, Michigan, I took a class on um, arts management, mm-hmm. um, and it was in uh, not the union, the other union. I can't think of what building it was. It was like it used to be the women's union way oh, back okay. when. But anyway, um, there was a theater there, and so we were learning about all of the back end. And I was not a theater student; I was a journalism student. But it was so fascinating to me because here was the first time that I was thinking well, we need all these functions in order to see the show, in order to have culture take place. There's a very complex web of people who and talents that you need to bring together to bring art to the fore. Yes, and as absolutely. a kid, it didn't occur to me, of course you need all of these different things, but um, but each function matters a lot. What are some of the briefly key takeaways that you know people can gain from the book? And then I'd love to hear just a little excerpt right. if you don't mind. Oh, so I mean, it ranges throughout the chapters, okay. but certainly, obviously, there are these common themes of you know grit, of mm-hmm. of persistence, mm-hmm. of passion, of the importance of being authentic mm. with whatever your artistic endeavor is. Because mm-hmm. um, a lot of people think, oh, I should just do this, and so for me, even developing and, and and, uh, and playing the violin from an early age. But as I grew, I realized that the violin was not actually the best medium, but rather spoken word. So hmm. that's what I focused on for the past five to 10 years in terms of my own artistic performing is spoken word with oh, classical wow. music and, and, huh. and developing various pieces surrounding that. And so again, that ended up being more authentic mm-hmm. for me in terms of how to best bring my quote unquote voice yes. to uh, the artistic expression that I wanted to bring. So where do you prefer- Form spoken word. Ah, uh, actually around the country. So I'm in the midst of this uh, new kind of big piece called the American Rhapsody, okay. where I take the words and writings of George Washington oh, wow. and show how that's very relevant to today in terms of a comment on democracy and all of these wow. issues. But I scored this work with the music of Samuel Coleridge Taylor, who's a black British composer. Oh my gosh. And so oh this gosh. kind of combined nature is very, we premiered it last year uh, uh-huh. with the Minnesota Orchestra. Okay. Um, and I'm performing it with about a dozen orchestras throughout the year. So uh, wow. people can, you know, just kind of Google my name and the and American Rhapsody. And, okay. Uh, it will uh, definitely so come cool. up. So. Oh my gosh, mind blown. It's just, <laughs> okay. So uh, let's hear just a little bit of an excerpt. Sure. So um, let's see. So uh, one of the chapters is Bill T. Jones, who, okay. of course, is just one of the most incredible leaders in in dance that um, that we have. And uh, so this is uh, just a, a brief part of him talking in terms of his personal story and his partner, Arnie. Uh, Arnie Zane, as um, unfortunately he was to lose. Mm. It was a punch in the gut, one that gay men felt every day in the 1980s, and the bruise was spreading as AIDS claimed new victims every day. By 1984, when Arnie was first diagnosed, there had been more than 7,000 AIDS diagnoses in America and more than 3,000 deaths. The company, the dance company, reeled at the news. No one knew what to do. It was not a good time, recalls Amy Pavar, one of the principal dancers. We didn't know what AIDS was, except that Arnie would be really tired and take a nap in the corner of the rehearsal studio. Mm. Over the next few years, Arnie got progressively sicker. In 1988, he was treated for a lymphoma that unfortunately exacerbated his condition. On March 30, the dancers of the company gathered at Arnie and Bill's home in Valley Cottage, New York. They spent the day celebrating Arnie and his life. That night... 
With Bill holding his head, lying in the bed that they shared together, Arnie left this world. Bill felt Arnie's absence keenly, and it was excruciating. In a private moment, Arnie had mentioned to Bill that he didn't need to keep the company, that he could go back to being a soloist. For Bill, though, the company was the child he'd had with Arnie. And it goes on to share wow. their story. And But one of the things that through that personal story I talk about is how Bill took those experiences and brought them authentically mm-hmm. to his art mm-hmm. and shared it with audiences and transformed audiences mm-hmm. and also took an issue that he so viscerally had to experience himself mm-hmm. um, but provide an avenue for others who shared a similar pain and opportunity to share it together and mm-hmm. to find ways to express it and find ways to connect and reconnect with others. That's beautiful. Well, I can't wait to read The Entrepreneurial Artist. Um, and I encourage all of our listeners to pick up a copy. But um, powerful. And uh, I'm excited to see the lessons that come from it. So thank you for, mm-hmm. for putting this out in the world and inspiring us all. Um, I'd like to close with a question I tend to ask our guests um, because we focus on how people make meaning in their work and find purpose in their lives on this show. Um, What advice might you offer our listeners who are struggling with that or yearning to find their path, their purpose? Um, What advice would you offer? Well, one of the things, at least that I know for myself, is that um, I know from experience that we can architect our own lives. We can't control everything that might happen to us, but we can absolutely control how we respond Mm -hmm. and what we do with the opportunities and the challenges that occur in our lives. And I think a lot of times it's so easy to go on autopilot. And there are so many times in my life, whether it even have been at Sphinx and saying, well, I could just almost be on autopilot here and stay here forever or serving as dean at, mm-hmm. at Michigan and saying, I could just do this. And, and even now as a, as a faculty member, um, I'm always exploring and thinking about what is, um, where do I want to take um, my expression mm-hmm. from where I am now to what I want to see in the future and then actively creating the machinery, the architecture mm-hmm. so that that can take place. And a lot of times we just kind of sit in my dream but without actually putting um, infrastructure into place so mm-hmm. that the dream can be realized. Sure. Um, and unfortunately, all too often, sometimes we don't even dream. Mm-hmm. And so I encourage um, all people, but especially young people, uh, to dream and then to follow through on that by putting the infrastructure in place so that the dream can be realized. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Aaron Dworkin, for being part of the Make Meaning podcast. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'd love it if you would share our great conversations with your people so we can all add meaning wherever we go and whatever we do.